Again, thanks for being with us this morning, especially if it's uh, your first time with us, first time in a long time. This is our house, and we are glad that you are a guest in it this morning. So glad you're with us today. As Ryan said, there's a, a free gift awaiting you in the, uh, in the foyer. Make sure you grab that. Uh, hopefully that will help you learn more about this church and about our faith, answer any questions that you might have. Uh, Ryan mentioned that we're going to beat that Steelers fan up um, after service. We're going to do it in Jesus' name. Okay, just... <laughs> That changes everything, right? I hope you had a great week this week. I know that I did. It was 55 degrees on Wednesday, church. You see, there is a God and he does answer prayer, even if it's only once every three months. Um, We're currently in a sermon series entitled Renewed. And in this series, we are talking about what it means at the beginning of a new year uh, to renew our commitment to Christ. See, when the calendar changes over, we tend to renew a lot of other things, don't we? Uh, We renew our eating habits and spending habits and even prayer habits, possibly. But what would it look like to renew our commitment to Christ and to do so in a culture that's actually somewhat hostile towards Christ? So we're wrestling with this question for the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, Last week, in light of Daniel 1, we were challenged to kind of call out the idols in our culture and to not worship the things that everybody else around us uh, worships. We were called to not just mindlessly consume everything that's placed in front of us. And it was pretty cool to see how you guys took that message to heart, how you started to to live it out. Uh, Julie Burns actually started a Facebook group called Southwest Denver Free Cycle. And what it is is an opportunity for you to post all your stuff that you're trying to purge yourself of. Right, last week we challenged uh, the church to, to not be consumed with consumption and instead to give some stuff away and to share stuff. And so uh, Southwest Denver Free Cycle, check it out on our website or our Facebook page, a great way to fight against the temptation of worshiping created things uh, rather than the creator. Of course, it's tempting though to go on there and be like, I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it. This is the outfit that I've chosen to wear for the next month as well. It wasn't last week. Like I said, you're not wearing the same outfit I started Monday, okay? And wearing the same thing for a whole month or the same seven things for a whole month, it felt like I was trying to like break off of meth or something like that. (laughs) Of course, I'm not sure what that feels like, but I'm sure it's just as difficult. Uh, But purging yourself of stuff, right, and not being consumed with consuming, it's a hard thing. And so I hope that you are, uh, hope that you're experiencing some victory. Uh, in that regard. And if that's what came out of chapter one, I'm excited to see what comes out of chapter two. Let's pray for our time together in the word. Father, uh, would you speak to us now? We believe that your word is truth and that it will speak life into us and that it will guide us unto life as that song uh, just proclaimed. And so would you do that now? Would you teach us, show us, and guide us into all truth? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A quick review for those of you who may be joining us for the first time this morning. A group of 10,000 young and good-looking, talented Jews are taken captive by a ruthless, cruel king named Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, A young man named Daniel and his three closest friends are part of that group of 10,000. But instead of being imprisoned by the king, these four guys are indoctrinated by him. After being captured, these four guys have to spend the next several years at Babylon State University. Or maybe you call it Babylonian boot camp. And it's in these three years where the king tries to make them, for all intents and purposes, as Babylonian as Babylonian gets. He tries to change everything from their names to their appearance to their allegiances. 
And although the dates and the times, the particulars are different, Daniel's dilemma is actually the same dilemma that you and I face. What does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to follow God in a society that's forgotten about God? Daniel is living that out and showing us what it means. And I'm excited here in chapter 2 to show you more of his answer. See, one of the ways that we answer that particular question we're going to see this morning is actually based on our ability to answer several other questions, one in particular. How many of you have ever played the game, Would You Rather? It's actually a board game, pretty fun. You could do it as an icebreaker game or maybe even in the car, but Would You Rather? You're given several choices. Would you rather spend three weeks lost at sea with a person who talks incessantly or someone who has a wet, hacking cough? Would you rather spend one year in a hotel room with a funky smell or one year in a hotel room with an uncomfortable bed? Would you rather spend a month with no explanation wearing a cape or a month with no explanation wearing an eye patch? How about both? And this one I thought applied to to Nathan and Ryan, several other staff members. Would you rather be the shortest boy in the fourth grade or the tallest girl in the fourth grade? You might want to ask them, because I'm not sure which one they'd actually choose. But there's one particular would you rather that actually comes up in real life. It's one that we have to deal with, the one that we see working itself out at different points in our life. Would you rather have book smarts or street smarts? Have you ever heard that question posed before? You ever seen that dichotomy depicted or that dilemma wrestled with? See, book smarts is something that's highly valued on college campuses and within academic circles. To be book smart means that you value education, knowledge, facts, and learning. It means that having the right answer is important to you. And you believe that there is a right answer for every problem. And it's the first step in solving every problem. A book smart person seeks lots of degrees likes to get straight A's, sits in the front row, and enjoys crossword puzzles and watching Jeopardy. Uh, To be street smart means that you're quick on your feet. You value experience over education. Being on the street or in the trenches or whatever low-to-the-ground metaphor you prefer means that you've been there, done that. And having that experience trumps having the right answer. A street smart person is typically good in sticky situation, doesn't really care about their grades, sits in the back row, and despises crossword puzzles and makes fun of those people who watch Jeopardy. And we see this debate, we see this struggle, this difference of opinions everywhere. We see it in the movies, right? You see it in like war movies, where the young, smart, uh, military grad comes onto the scene and has more education than the old sergeant does. So he's a higher rank than the sergeant, but he's scared of the battlefield. He's never been there and done that, and so the sergeant has to take the lead. You see it in movies like Goodwill Hunting, where the guy sweeping the halls and cleaning the bathroom, he's actually the smartest guy at the Ivy League school, but he's not going to school there. You see it in the papers, right? It's the PhD in communication. She writes these amazing columns on love and intimacy and relationships, but she's single, right? You even see it on The Apprentice. On the third season of The Apprentice, Trump decided to pit the street smarts group against the book smarts group. It was amazing to see who was better in different situations. At the end of the season, Trump actually hired a book smarts girl. So we see this play out everywhere. Well, in Daniel 2, we're going to learn about a third type of smarts that I think incorporates and actually trumps. You guys are quick this morning. 
There's a third type of smarts, though, that I think is far superior to the other two. Let's read the first few verses of Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants this dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream. We'll be happy to interpret it. The king answered, I'm certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There's no one on earth who can do what the king is asking. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked for such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and the gods don't live among the people. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his three friends to put them to death. So one night, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Sounds like it's an upsetting dream, to say the least. So the next morning, he calls all the professionals into his office. Kind of the modern-day example, modern-day version of psychologists, scientists, professors, pastors. He calls them all in to help him make sense of this dream. Well, none of the king's advisors are prepared for the pop quiz that the king lays out for them. Tell me what I dreamt last night, he says. And tell me exactly what it means or... I will cut you into pieces and burn your house down. Sounds like the big bad wolf, doesn't it? And it is. It's the big bad Nebuchadnezzar. Well, the experts responded like most college kids respond around finals time. What? No study guide? Not fair. But the request is ridiculous, don't you think? And what the king is asking for is ludicrous. I have to agree with the sorcerers in verse 10. There's not a man on earth. Who can do what the king is asking? Well, for Nebuchadnezzar, excuses always resulted in executions. So he orders that all the wise men in the kingdom be killed. And wouldn't you know it, our guys, the characters, the main characters in this story, in the book of Daniel, Daniel and his three friends, they're part of that group. So now their heads are on the chopping block. So the chief of police goes around rounding up all of these guys. And literally, as he's putting the handcuffs on Daniel and taking him to his execution, Daniel just starts asking some questions. Like, what's going on? What, what happened? What, why is the king so upset? I mean, this morning we were serving the king, and now he wants us dead? So he buys some time. He goes before the king and says, give me a day, give me a night to pray about this, and I will get an answer for you. No human being could do what the king was asking. That is true. But guess what? There's a God who can do what he's asking. There's a God who can do it, and he actually did it. That very night, God reveals to Daniel what the dream was, as well as the interpretation of it. 
So that night they bust out in this little spontaneous worship session. I would have loved to be a little fly on the wall just to see these four guys just praising their hearts out because God revealed to them what was going on. So the next morning they wake up and Daniel goes to the king. He goes on to explain to him that God has has shown him what he dreamt about. He dreamt about this large statue. And this statue represents all the different kingdoms of the world. And at different times, each of the parts of the statue crumble and fall because different kings and their kingdoms at different times crumble and fall. But there is one king, God himself, and one kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, that will stay and remain forever. Daniel says, that's what you dreamt, and that's what it means. Nebuchadnezzar is blown away by his insight and ends up promoting Daniel to a position of great influence. Now, this is a great story, and I want you to go back and read the entire chapter this week. But I think the entire chapter, as well as the entire book of Daniel, boils down to one thing, and I'm going to call it God smarts. You see, Daniel's insight had nothing to do with book smarts or street smarts. His education didn't help him in this situation. His experience didn't help him in this situation. Nobody and nothing could help him in this situation except for God. See, this chapter is not about Daniel's book smarts or his street smarts. It's really not even about Daniel at all. This chapter is about God. God imparting wisdom and understanding unto his people. Wisdom and understanding that nobody else has. It's about God giving his followers the ability to know the truth and to speak the truth into difficult situations. It's about God illuminating, literally illuminating the minds and the hearts of his people so they can answer difficult questions. You following me? Because that's exactly where our story and our faith intersects with Daniel's. Okay, we don't have an angry king asking us to interpret a dream or else, but we do have friends. We do have family members, we do have neighbors, we do have coworkers, and all of them have and all of them are asking difficult questions about difficult things, aren't they? What about the national debt? What about the six million immigrants in our country? Are all Muslims out to kill me? What's the solution to gun violence and the increase in mass shooting? Is religious liberty something we have to fight for, and if so, how? Is sexual purity all that important? Is Han Solo actually... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Spoiler. See, everyone around us is looking for answers. Everyone around us is looking for insight. Everyone around us is looking for truth. See, just like Nebuchadnezzar, everyone around us is dealing with something difficult, and they need help understanding it. From how to bake a five-layer cake to how to raise five kids... Everyone is wondering, how am I supposed to get through this? How am I supposed to do this? And why am I supposed to do this? But where do you go for answers, right? Where do you go for insight? Where do you go for wisdom? I mean, do you just listen to the talk show hosts? Or do you just listen to that lady who works next to you who never stops talking? Do you just listen to um, the, the, the experts who kind of contradict each other? Or do you listen to the politicians who tend to bash each other? I mean, where do you go for answers? Where do you go for truth? Do any of them know what's going on? Or are they just like the experts in King Nebuchadnezzar's day? Are they unable and incapable of knowing? I don't know, they all said. Why are you looking at me, king? Look at Proverbs 2.6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You see, it's God who guides people into truth. It's God who gives wisdom. It's God who gives understanding. He's the one who has insight and intuition into all things. 
But like Nebuchadnezzar, most of us rely on all the experts. When we have a difficult thing going on, when we're encountering a difficult situation in life, we call it the experts. The smartest people, the richest people, the most accomplished people, the best looking people, sometimes just the loud mouth people. But God says, I'm the only one who's got the answer. And here's the beautiful thing. He actually wants to give the answer to his people. Look at James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, well, then you're just stuck and you're not going to ever figure it out. That stinks. No, if you lack wisdom, what should you do? Ask God because he will give generously to all who ask without finding fault. And that wisdom you need, that wisdom you lack, it will be given to you. See, unlike Jack Nicholson, God thinks you can handle the truth. And not not only can you handle it, he wants you to have the truth. God wants you to know the truth. See, he wants to use us in the same exact way that he used Daniel. He wants to use you to speak truth. He wants to use you to bring great clarity. He wants to use you to ultimately save others' lives. And that's how we're going to conclude the message this morning and really drive it home. There are tons of questions that are being asked of our culture and tons of questions that we need to have godly wisdom in answering. But there's one in particular that I think applies directly to this particular chapter. See, in Daniel 2, his insight and his understanding literally saved lives, didn't it? If he didn't know what the dream was and if he didn't know what it meant, what was going to happen? People were going to be cut up. People were going to die. And there's a question being asked in our culture right now where that exact same thing is happening. There's a question in our culture right now where life and death are literally hanging in the balance depending on our answer to the question. Now this question has been asked for thousands of years, but it's really getting close to home as of late. From the Planned Parenthood videos that came out last year to the horrific shooting in Colorado Springs last month, people are asking and our lar- the larger culture is wondering, what do we do about unplanned pregnancies? What do we do about unplanned pregnancies? Now, you might disagree, but I honestly think this is one of the most crucial and most important questions being asked in our culture right now. And I don't know about you, but I want to get on my knees and lay on my face and, like Daniel, ask for God's mercy and God's wisdom and God's insight into this particular question. Because depending on how we answer this question, people will live or die. You with me? A majority of the world, including the U.S., says that the answer to that question is abortion. Right across the world, over 42 million abortions a year. That's 115,000 abortions a day. Now, statistics will suggest that one out of every three American women will have dealt with or wrestled with or had to experience an abortion themselves at some point in their life. Think about that. One out of every three. That's in our community. That's possibly even in our church. They will wrestle with, agonize, and ultimately choose to answer the question by ending the pregnancy. Abortion seems to be the most popular answer to the question of what to do with babies that we didn't plan on, that we didn't expect, and that we don't really want. And my hope, my goal this morning in bringing all this up, because if you know me, I typically don't talk about this stuff. And if you're joining us for the first time, don't think that all we do at church is ask for your money, which I already did, and then talk about issues like this. Because, ah, sorry. But we got to talk about this stuff, don't we? we got to seek God's wisdom on this stuff. 
We've got to figure out how, how the gospel message and how biblical truth should radically inform and change the way we think about this stuff. And then more than that, let's take it one step further. We've got to ask that God would anoint us to speak clearly and intelligibly on this subject so that lives may be saved. We are in Daniel 2 right now. Depending on how you answer this question, people will live or die. And I want people to live. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but today is actually National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Uh, last year, I introduced you to International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I'm telling you about holidays galore you never even knew about. Today, though, is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And so people across the country and really across the world are asking God, how can we have your wisdom on this subject? What do we say about? How do we talk to others? What is our posture? What is our position as it pertains to this particular subject matter, as it pertains to unplanned pregnancy? And it's amazing to me how when Christians typically start dealing with this stuff, with this issue, when they start interacting with men or women who have had an abortion or wrestled with it, they don't look or sound like Jesus at all. And that frustrates me. We bash. He blessed. We point. He prayed. We fight. He forgave. We ridicule. He redeemed. You see the difference? See the problem? The answers, the wisdom, the insight that we need, it comes from God. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, church, then you better hear this. The answers that come from God, the wisdom that comes from God, the insight that comes from God, it is always life-giving and it's always life-affirming. No matter where you are on the spectrum. If you're wrestling with it, it's always life-giving and life-affirming. Even if you're on the other side of it, guess what? God's wisdom and answer is always life-giving and life-affirming. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've gone through, the answer that God will give you is always life-giving and it's always life-affirming. So what is the answer to this question? How do we bring life to others in a pretty dark situation? Well, Pastor David Platt has some great thoughts on all of this in his book, Counterculture. He says this regarding abortion. In the Bible, you won't find the word abortion anywhere, but that doesn't mean that God is silent about it. There are the beautiful words of Psalm 139. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I am perfectly, wonderfully made. There are the powerful words of Job 12.10. In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. There are the definitive words of Nehemiah 9.6. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. See, it's in light of these three passages and a ton of other ones. I just wanted you to get to the Broncos game this afternoon. I would share all of them with you. But in light of all of these passages, it should become clear to us that this issue, that abortion itself, it's a direct attack on God. It's an attack on God's unique attributes. Let me share two with you. Abortion is an attack on his authority. You see, God has the authority to give life and to take life. But abortion puts that authority in our hands. It makes it seem as if humans are the ones who control life and death. We elevate ourselves to a role and we take a seat at the table that's not ours to take. Through abortion, we get to decide who lives and who dies. But doesn't that fly in the face of God's authority? Listen to the humbling words of Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. No one can deliver out of my hand. You see, it's God's prerogative, his prerogative alone, to give and to take life. He originally brought everything into existence, and he's the only one, therefore, who has the right to take anything out of existence. 
Life and death are his calls. They're not our calls. Now, I can't speak to the agony of having to make that call. But in light of the fact that God is the giver of life, I honestly believe that should be enough reason for us to say he's the only one who can take life as well. Now, side note here, when it comes to abortion, one of the main arguments that is given is that we aren't actually killing a person. We're just destroying a group of cells or, or removing a clump of tissue. But if you know the beautiful details of a baby's development, you know how foolish that is. From the miracle of an egg and a sperm even coming together in the first place, the chances of that happening are like the chances of you winning the lottery this last week, and yet it happens again and again and again. It's millions upon millions of different things having to come into place for it even to happen. And then 18 days later, before most women even know they're pregnant, a little heartbeat has started. And then 40 days later, brain waves are detectable. Little fingers are forming. A few months later, all the inward parts are moving and grooving, kind of doing what they're supposed to do. It's clear that from the very beginning of the process, life and God are a part of it. From the very beginning. I remember when Princess Kate of England announced that she was pregnant the first time. You remember that? Like, woo! Like, who cares? Anyway, most of us do for some reason. Immediately, everybody started talking. What'd they talk about? They talked about the baby in her belly. Now, you would have been shot and killed if you described that child as a blob of cells or as a blastocyst in her belly. Right? You didn't call that the royal fetus. We didn't celebrate the royal embryo. It was a child, a royal child, a very important child, a living, breathing child from the moment that we learned she was with child. Guys, that's true for every child. That's true for every child. So abortion, it attacks God's authority, but also it directly attacks his sovereignty. The fact that he is in full control and fully present in any and every situation. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God says. Before you were even born, I sanctified you. Ephesians 1.11, in him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. See, scripture makes it clear that God is in control of everything. Things that we can see as well as things that we can't see. He's in complete control of things that we can understand and comprehend as well as things we can't understand or comprehend. That's kind of what makes him God. One is that he gives life and can take it away. Unique attribute of God. Number two unique attribute of God, he's in control of everything at all times. See, I like to think different, but I can hardly control anything in my life. You feel the same way? Like I can't control if my kids eat dinner. I can't even control my moods. I can't control the, the traffic patterns on 470. I can't control anything. And yet God says, I control it all. And that's what makes me God. I give life and I take life. And I'm also in control of everything. He is working in all things before we even know about them and long after we've given up on them. And I think that should change everything when it comes to abortion. You see, unplanned doesn't mean unseen. Unplanned doesn't mean unwanted. Unplanned doesn't mean unknown. I mean, church... Come on, if we are brutally honest about all this, our entire faith is based on the greatest unplanned pregnancy of all time. Oh, Mary, you never had sex? You're pregnant. And that's how God sounds, by the way, too. Like, 
You talk about unplanned pregnancy, but this is just one in the long line of many others, right? Isaac, well, she, she's, she's going to give birth to Isaac in her old age. Elizabeth, even now you will be with baby, the angel says. There is unplanned pregnancy after unplanned pregnancy in God's story. And it proves that God is aware of and controls life and pregnancies and births, even when they come as a surprise to us, even when they catch us off guard. That's not true with God. As sovereign Lord, he has the ability and the power to use any birth, every birth, to bring a life in a woman, to bring life to the woman, and to bring life to everybody around the woman. That's how it works with God. He's really good at it, too. So you didn't plan on it. You don't know what to do with it. You're not sure any good's going to come out of it. But guess what? God does. God does, and God will. Now, I know there are tons of secondary questions in all of this. What about disabilities? What about rape and incest? Those kind of things. I get that. I get that. But a couple of things on that real fast. One is, if you're going to make an entire argument, you need to understand what you're talking about. You need to understand percentages. If you talk about rape, incest, and disabilities being the, the primary justification for abortion, that's 1% of all abortions are done because of rape, incest, and disabilities. 1%. 75% women choose, and they say, this is going to change my life too drastically. That's why I'm doing it. So if you want to base your entire argument on 1%, I get that. Now, are there extreme situations? Are there moments we need to pray hard and, and think creatively about what to do? Of course there are. But don't base your entire argument on 1%. Reminds me of this story. Uh, a professor in a world-acclaimed medical school once posed this situation, an ethical problem to his students. Okay, here's the family history, he says. The father has syphilis. The mother has tuberculosis. They already have had four children. Now, the first is blind. The second kid's died. The third is deaf. And the fourth has tuberculosis as well. Now the mother is pregnant again. The parents come to you for advice. They ask you what you think they should do. And they throw out the word abortion. What do you say? The story goes on to say the students kind of wrestled with the question for a little while. They broke off into small groups to kind of consult and talk about it. All the groups came back to report that they would recommend abortion. It's just not right. It's not right for the family. It's not right for the child. It's not right for the world, they said. Congratulations, the professor said. You just took the life of Beethoven. Now we could go on and on and on. And I looked up all week long those whose wives contemplated abortion, from movie stars to athletes to, to world leaders. There are so many people whose moms and dads wrestled with that, th that decision, but they decided against it. And now we have life, their life, important life. But more than that, guys, and I think this story points to that, Okay, rape and incest and disabilities and all that stuff, yes. But is God sovereign and is he not? Is he in control of all things or is he not? Is Romans 8.28 true? Is Genesis 50 true? That what other people intended for harm, God can use to bring about good? That he works out all things for the good of those? Is that true or not? It's either true forever or it's not true at all. And so when it comes to these crazy situations, we still believe in the sovereignty of God. Now, again, I'm not an expert on this. I have not walked through this. So don't, don't hear me just barking up empty commands up here, man. But I got to believe in God's sovereign power. I got to believe it's his authority of giver and taker of life. I got to believe that his truth applies to unplanned pregnancies just as it does to everything else. Okay, so what do we what do, we do about this? What do we do with all of this? I'm so glad you asked. 
Uh, well, as I said last month after that shooting in Paris, right? Christians cannot just sit back and just kind of yell at the darkness. And Christians cannot just sit back and just say, well, here's the answer to the problem, right? You can't just say, oh, the Bible's clearly pro-life. Uh, any more questions? That solves that, right? No, I, I got a lot more questions for you. So, so are we going to support young, uh, unwed teenage mothers? Yeah, that's a question I got for you. Are we, what, what are we going to do with adoption agencies? Are we going to start supporting those more now? That's a question I got for you, pro-lifer. Hey, pro, pro-lifer, I want to I ask you real fast, what do we do with the foster care system in our society? Are you going to partner with them? Are you going to help out there? Just saying you're pro-life is not enough. I want to speak life. I want to bring life. I want to support life. I want to save life. And I'm going to spit while I do it. But you see, pro-life, it's too small. We want to speak life, bring life, support life, save life. And that's why I love the organization that I've been kind of bragging about the last couple of months. It's called Alternatives Pregnancy Center. Here's a great video this morning that, that highlights and kind of showcases all that this group does. Watch this. I was planning on going off to college and um, to the Western Slope, and I was be playing softball, and it seemed like I had just the world in the palm of my hands. And uh, less than 24 hours before leaving for college, I got the news and found out that I was with child. And that was basic turning point in my life. It seemed as though just the world was in the palm of my hands. And in a moment, my dreams are shattered, I thought. And the shame and the guilt and the fear consumed me. And I felt like I was in the bottom of a pit and that there was no way out. I was surrounded by family and friends who loved me and who wanted to comfort me and be there for me. But none of them knew my position. And then I was introduced to the Alternatives Pregnancy Center. They had set me up with a one-on-one -on -one counselor with a gal who had been in my shoes and who had experienced what I was experiencing. The Alternatives Pregnancy Center influenced me hugely in encouraging me that I had nine months to make this decision and to make a decision that was right and ultimately to make a decision that was honoring to God and um, a decision that would greatly impact not only my future, but the future of, of my child. And I'm so grateful that my father had the wisdom to say, I can't tell you what you have to do. You have to seek God's will for your life. I can't say when that defining moment was. I know it was sometime within the eight month, but when I knew in my heart that that's what I was gonna do, that I was going to keep my child, I just had that peace that the Bible talks about, the peace that passes all understanding, and move forward with that decision. APC did so much by helping me. It might have been just a pinpoint in, in my lifeline, but that pinpoint affected not only my life, but generations. But God had it all planned out. See, it's not just what we're against, it's what we're for. We're for life, we're for helping women before, during, and after all of this stuff. We're, we're for alternatives. 
That's why I love this agency. They're the most holistic pregnancy agency I've ever come across. And they help people on every end of the spectrum. They're in the schools teaching folks kind of what it means to to be healthy sexually and to understand what's going on in your body kind of before all this happens. They walk with women who are wrestling with and contemplating an abortion in that moment. And then they counsel ladies and even men who have have gone through an abortion. Sometimes even 30 years after the fact, they are there life-giving and life-affirming. So I love this agency and I want you to fall in love with them as well. I've asked, because it's Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, for them to come. They have a mobile unit, and it's parked right outside in our parking lot. I want you to see what they do. Walk through this mobile unit. It's this huge RV that's full of resources and opportunities. People can get STD tests there. They can have um, the ultrasounds done. They can meet with counselors. It's an amazing resource. And I'm hoping and praying that they will choose us to have that mobile out several times a month during the week. Think about the 4,000 teens that live in this neighborhood. Columbine, Dakota Ridge, Chatfield. I was expecting woos from somebody on one of those, but our kids have all dropped out. But think about all the teens in this area. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a resource center right there for them? And what better place to have it than I think our parking lot saying, we are here for you and we will give you life-giving, life-affirming answers no matter where you are on the journey. You see, Daniel wasn't in a tough spot, wasn't he? Talk about a would you rather. Would you rather answer this difficult question or would you rather die? Actually, maybe it wasn't that difficult. (laughs) We're kind of in the same boat, guys. Would you rather just shrug your shoulders and not really get involved or would you rather speak life, bring life, save life? My hope this morning is that you wouldn't be personally convinced of these things. Well, yes, that, but more than that that you would start to speak this into our culture, that you would start to, start to speak this into the people around you. See, Daniel could have known what it meant and known what the interpretation was and then kept it to himself. Well, this is just what I think the interpretation is, but who am I to tell you anybody else what the interpretation is? No, no, we need you. We need you, Daniel. We need you to say something. We need you to explain what is true, what is right, what is real, what is best. And when you do, Daniel, you will bring life and you will save life. I hope that you will share the truth with those around us. Let's pray that we'll do just that. God, this is a difficult subject matter and we come before you humbly asking that you will help us to be and think and feel like Jesus, that we will be on our knees with those who have wrestled with and agonized over this decision, that there will be no condemnation in our voice or in our tone or in our questions, but that instead we will have your wisdom, wisdom from on high, wisdom and insight that only you can give, wisdom and answers that will bring life and save life. Father, help us to speak boldly and courageously on this topic and many others. Help us to realize that that the truth, God, will bring life to us and those around us. So help us to proclaim it. Bless and protect and heal those in this room who have gone through this difficult decision. Even now, God, would you heal their bodies, heal their hearts, heal their spirits. And no matter what they decided, God, would you Help them to know you are the great healer, the great redeemer, the great restorer, and you will bring good out of anything and everything that has happened. You will. You have proven that, and you will do it again. Help us to be just like Jesus in this moment and just like Daniel uh, in this moment as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Lots of exciting things going on at the church. Thank you guys for being here. Check your bulletin out. Stop by all the tables in the foyer. Uh, Don't forget your dollar in the bin on the way out as well. Have a great week. Be strong and courageous.